and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life now. Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I'm Brian Levinson. So excited to have you with us for today's episode. We chat with Sean Pendergast. Sean is a radio host down in Houston, Texas, and he will tell his story about how he became a radio host. And one of the things I love about this podcast is the ability to interview performers in a variety of professions. And when I think of sports talk radio, I think of people that have to improvise, but they also have to prepare and think about what they want the show to be like and be really thoughtful in questions and the type of questions they want to ask Yes. So Sean is somebody who I've been excited to chat with for a while now because he's going to share the art of the interview. He's going to share sales and how sales plays a role in not just radio, but in his profession before he joined the ranks of on-air personality. So Sean is somebody who is very thoughtful. He's very intentional with how he goes about his job. He values preparation, but he also knows that when the lights are on, he's got to be adaptable and he's got to find a way to make the time that he's talking into the mic to be entertaining, but also be thoughtful and intentional. So Sean is definitely an intentional performer. You're going to find his journey to be pretty unbelievable and honestly, pretty inspiring. So I don't want to give you too much into Sean's story, but I know that you'll love this conversation. And when you do, if you could like it on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, wherever it is that you're social, we would appreciate that. And also make sure to give Sean a follow on Twitter. He's funny, he is interesting, and he's very thoughtful with what he puts out on social media. So without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you, Sean Pendergast. Sean, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This is this is one of the more exciting interviews I've done because this is a role reversal. So when we first got connected, you were the one that had me on your show. Um, and I'll give people a little bit of background on that because it's, I don't think a lot of people that are listening to this have any idea of what I'm about to say. So in a previous life, I had an NBA draft website where I wrote about you know prospects for the NBA draft and it was called briansbigboard.com. And I loved doing it. I did it when I was in grad school and a little bit before grad school. And it was a labor of love. I love the NBA draft. And um, Sean reached out to me because I wrote for CBS Sports 
and uh, he's read one of the articles I wrote for them. Um, if you want, I think there's some stuff out there uh, on the internet. Uh, I might cringe if I read some of the predictions that I had. Um, but Sean reached out to me back then and said, hey, I'd love to have you on my radio show. I'm based out of Houston. And I was like, awesome, let's do it. And so Sean had me on his radio show. Uh, so we're going to do a little role reversal today where I'm going to find out more about you um, and your expertise. And what I really wanted to start with is I know a little bit about your background, a little bit about your story. Your story is not a conventional one as far as radio goes. So give everyone a little bit of your background and how you got into radio, how you ended up doing this for a living. And just give, yeah. us, give us a sense of your uh, background in radio. Yeah, yeah. I guess just to, to lay it out, and I appreciate you having me on, Brian. I'm excited. I'm just as excited to talk to you, if not more so. So this is going to be fun. Um, yeah, I guess just to, you know, to back all the way up, I was in college in the late 80s and early 90s. I went to the University of Notre Dame. And I did a little bit of radio in college, and I really liked it. But I grew up sort of a talk, sports talk radio junkie before sports talk radio became kind of a big thing. And by the time I moved back to Connecticut, which is where I'm from, uh, WFAN had started up, um, Mike and the Mad Dog were the, you know, they were the big deal. And, and, you know, Mike Francesa was a big deal. And so was the Mad Dog. They split up a few years ago, but, um, you know, they've been doing it since the late, the late eighties and early nineties up there. So I, I was, you know, driving to and from work every day. I would listen to them and, and I was really into sports talk, moved to Houston in 1994 and, uh, I was in sales at the time. I was not in radio. I got into sales right out of college. Would have loved to have done radio right out of college, but you get into sales, you have a little bit of success, and you start to create a lifestyle for yourself that Sean, isn't sustainable. Sean, when you were at Notre Dame, yeah. were you, what were you studying? Was there any thought then about being in radio? or what No, I was a finance major. I, I have <laughs> – my background is the most disjointed background you're going to find of anybody you talk to because I was a finance major who – I was one of those kids who wasn't really into – I did well grade-wise, but I wasn't into what I was studying. Um, I came from kind of a, you know, one of those fairly affluent suburbs where it felt like, you know, success was sort of defined by, well, you go to a great college and you get a great job and then you have a family and that's sort of it. And so I always felt like I was kind of like, you know, sort of mentally schooled into, well, that's what you do and you get a job after college and this and that. I wasn't into finance at all. So I got into sales selling telecom equipment for a company that was a subsidiary of IBM. And, uh, and I ended up liking sales mostly because if you were good at it, you could make a lot of money doing it. So um, I moved to Houston in 1994. And the first thing I did when I got down here was like, okay, what's the all sports station in Houston? What's the WFAN down here? And there wasn't one. It just so happens that the station I'm at now, sports radio, 610 flipped over to all sports the week that I moved here. Just Sean in sort of a how rare is that? Because Houston's a massive market. Well, um, keep in mind, yeah, keep in mind, Brian, it was 1994. So it was still fairly, you're right. I mean, behind the curve for sure in having an all sports for a big city like that. But it was, the the, the, the genre was still fairly in, in kind of its, as far as stations being all sports, you know, maybe not the sports talk format, but the all sports station was still sort of a a burgeoning format. You know, Dallas had just gotten a ticket. WIP in Philadelphia. Um, it's not nearly to the extent it is now where there's literally like thousands of all sports stations. And we have four here in Houston right now. So, so over um, a 24, 23 year span, you go from none to four. It's, it's just pretty remarkable to think about media and how it's, how it's transformed. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I moved here in 94 
And I got, you know, ended up working for a startup in 1997, got married, had, a, had three kids. And I started working my way up in my job that I was in. I went from being the sales guy here in Houston for a startup to being their area sales director in Denver to being the VP of sales for the entire company outside of Chicago in Naperville, Illinois. So I was, I was clearly Mr. Corporate Guy, man, working my way up, doing very, very well. The further I got up the ladder, and this is probably in, I, I became VP of sales in 2004. The further I got up the ladder, the more miserable I got. And the more I lamented, the more I wished I could go back and tell 22-year-old Sean to, you should have gotten into radio back then when you didn't have all these encumbrances of, of a house and kids and, you know, and expectations and all of those things. So it's, it's weird how life works because this is about 2005, 2006, when I was really starting to get depressed about, and it's weird to say, I, the, the higher up I went, the more depressed I got. And in 2007, February 23rd, 2007, which was my darkest moment, ended up being the best thing that ever happened to me. Uh, our company got bought and which was the goal of any startup, really. I mean, most people start up companies to sell them. It took us about 10 years. And the company that bought us had a VP of sales already, so they didn't need me anymore. So February 23rd, 2007, I get called into the CEO's office to basically find out that they don't need me anymore. I get a severance package. And in that moment, I'm not, you know, in that moment, little did I know it would be the best thing. In the moment when you're being told this, you're like, holy cow, I've never been fired before. This is weird. I was, about thir- I was 38 years old at the time. And so I'm like, okay, well, this sucks. Go back to my office. They're letting me clean my things out. They fired a few people the level below me too. Can you can you unpack a little bit of the feelings sure. that you went through uh, in that moment, the emotions, yeah. and just yeah. like paint that picture for us a little bit more uh, sure. from an emotional level? Fear was the first one that probably kicked in just because my kids were nine, nine, and I think, I'm trying to think, no, eight, no, no, nine, nine, and eight. So you have twi- nine, nine, and seven. You have twins and then and then another one two years later. And then another one 16, 16 months later, all with the same woman. Wow. Um, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so, you know, th- you know three kids, um, you know, so fear, uh, I'll throw in here. I was going to throw it in in a minute. I was going through a divorce at the time. So it was a really dark time for me, even if I was thriving in my job. Um, and then honestly, Brian, probably a sense of relief. Just because there's anytime you're going through an or uh, through a, a merger, you know, I, I knew the purchase was coming down the line, but I was sort of in denial as to what it would mean for me. I'm like, well, they'll never get rid of me, you know, like, but there's uncertainty and anytime, at least the uncertainty was then removed. So there's a little bit of a sense of relief, like, okay, well, now there's some clarity here. I got to go find something else to do. You know what I mean? And it also removed, you know, it, it, it took me out of a job that I was not very happy in too. So a little bit of a sense of relief, a lot of fear. Um, you know, and I was probably inside just swirling with a lot of anger just generally and how my life was kind of going, maybe even anger at myself for letting it go in that direction. So, so would you say a couple years earlier, if people had seen you, you've got these twins, you've got another kid, you got three kids, you're married, you're making a lot of money, I presume you're, you're socially, if we go back to Connecticut, they would say, Sean is a success. Huge, gigantic house, all those things, all the material things that you, yes. If you looked at my profile, you know, you know what I mean? Like if you did a box score of my life at the time, just the things that you could see, I'm not talking about my emotional box score. Cause that would have looked like, uh, you know, that, that, that would have looked like the Brooklyn Nets last year, but the, the, but the, the box score of, of, 
of things that, uh, you know, that, that I had. Uh, yeah, absolutely. They would have looked at it and said, man, he's thriving. He's doing great. It is an interesting thing that we should probably hit on, which is happiness, right? And yeah. I think a lot of people think that happiness is tied to material. And yeah. um, the research really doesn't say that. Uh, the research is pretty sound on uh, that happiness comes from, you know, really sound um, relationships. It comes yep. from, you know, helping other people. It comes from having gratitude. Uh, there are, there's a whole science of happiness and materials are, are pretty low, low on that list. And what the research also says, as far as money goes, is that, yes, if you have enough money that you're secure, um, that is linked to happiness. Yeah. But once you get past that baseline of security, um, that's why you have really wealthy people that are miserable and you have people that are secure, but they may not be, you know, making a ton of money, then they're not you know, they might be really happy. So I think happiness is something that's really important. And I think you're sort of hitting on that from the outside in everyone would say, Oh, Sean's killing yeah. it and doing really well. But uh, inside there were, there were challenges that were going on as well. Yeah. And I think what, what I'm about to tell you, Brian, will kind of circle into what you're talking about with relationships um, and helping people. Um, because ironically, my chance to get into radio began that very same day out of something where I was helping somebody and out of relationships, previous relationships that I had had from when I lived in Houston. When I lived in Houston, I was such a big fan of sports radio 610 because it was the first sports talk station that I became a P1 listener, man. I went to all their events. I became friends with the, the morning hosts. We started a fantasy football league together that still exists to this day. These are people I now compete with, by the way. Um, but I was a listener, you know, I was one of their mid twenties, you know, I show up at the at the remotes. You know, I, I I used all their sponsors. You know, they they did sponsorships for a carpet clean. I I used them because John and Lance told me to use them. I was that guy, and those are relationships and friendships that I had even kept going once I had moved away from Houston. Um, and so here's what happened: was I went back to my office that day, and I, I had to call all the directors who I who I had to go fire. You know, like I, your last order of business, Sean, is to get rid of all these directors, you wow. know, and tell them that they're losing their jobs too. And one of them happened to be here in Houston and his name was Joe, his name still is Joe Garza. Uh, and Joe, Joe said, uh, Hey, I'm thinking of getting out of this telecom gig and getting into radio sales, you know, like selling ads on radio. Do you know anybody at 610? And I said, yeah, I know a few guys over there. I don't know the sales guys over there, but I, I know some of the on-air guys. I can get your resume over to somebody who can pass it along. He said, that'd be great. So I, I put an email together to a friend of mine named Chance McLean, who was the producer of the morning show there. Attached Joe's resume to it, sent a little email. And at the bottom of the email, just joking around, put, P.S., carve out a couple hours for me on the weekend. I may be coming home. You know what I, I always considered Houston home because I always wanted to move back to Houston. I loved it here so much when I lived here the first time. And I, so I just put that as a joke at the bottom send off the email. So I get my car that night, put my box in the back of the car with all my belongings. I did the perp walk out of the building, the whole nine yards. And, uh, and I, I'm, uh, I drive home, pull into my driveway into this, you know, driveway, this gigantic house, this driveway where in, in my BMW, you know, like everything should be great. And I'm sitting in this car and I'm the most miserable person in the world. And I'm thinking, man, I just lost my job. I got to walk back into this house where someone's in there who I'm in the middle of just this acrimonious divorce right now. I, I don't know where the next paycheck's going to come from. 
And at that moment, I looked down at the temperature gauge, Brian, on my car. Keep in mind the date I told you. It was February 23rd in Chicago. It was negative 11 degrees. Mm. And it was like one of those moments where you looked at that. That temperature was just so metaphorically symbolic of everything I had going on at that moment. You know, it was like, like if you were doing a movie, if you've ever seen Jerry Maguire, and you go back and watch the scene where Bob Sugar's firing him in that mm. restaurant, there's a moment where Jerry realizes he's getting fired. And I just thought it was brilliant by Cameron Crowe where – it's a first-person point of view of him just looking down into a glass of empty, you know, just a glass of water. And you know, we've always been in those moments where you get told this bit of bad news and you remember exactly what you're looking at when it hits you about how bad the time is. And that was it, the negative 11 degrees. At that very moment, this is a true story, and everybody who's involved in this story will corroborate it. My phone rings, my cell phone rings, and it's Chance, the guy I just sent the email to. And I answer the phone. I'm like, hey, what's up, man? And he's like, hey, what's going on with you? I'm like, not a lot. You know, so. <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> yeah, just, well, get comfy, Chance. Um, so, uh, so I said, did you get my email with Joe's resume? And he says, he says uh, yeah, but that's not why I'm calling. He said, I'm calling because you're PS at the bottom. And he said, were you? He I said, yeah, uh, you know, about the radio thing. He said, yeah, were you serious? Here's a part I left out also. And this is kind of an important puzzle piece. I, in the time I was really enjoying, and it's a big puzzle piece, I can't believe I left it out, but um, I, had, I did have some notoriety in the radio world in that period where I was working in the sales world for 15 years. I was a caller to the Jim Rome Show, and I won the smack off on the Jim Rome Show five times. That's a huge piece I'm leaving out because I did have some notoriety in the radio world to where, to where I had had opportunities to at least get into, you know, kind of creep into that world. Jim Rome offered me a job in 2003 to move to L.A. and write for him. But I had to turn it down because I had three little kids and moving from Colorado to L.A., which is I was living in Colorado at the time. You know, you're tripling the price of your house. And there were just there were encumbrances and practicalities that wouldn't allow me to do that. Plus, I was doing well in my job at the time and I was happy in my job at the time. So I, 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 and I put that Jim Rome piece in there because I'm because it's an important element to what the conversation I was having with Chance. So Chance calls me and said, that PS at the bottom of your email, were you serious about that? And I said, I don't know. Why, you know, why are you asking? He said, well, some people you know at 610 are getting ready to leave here to start the fourth sports station in Houston. And, you know, we kind of figure we need to do some unique things uh, with the lineup, you know, do some non-standard sort of thing. Don't hire the regular cookie-cutter radio host. And we figured the guy who won the smack-off on the Jim Rome show five times, you know, why not give that a try? So your names come up to do afternoon drive on this new station in Houston. Wait, so this came up before you even are emailing him? This, they're unbeknownst to me. Yeah. You know, they, yeah, the people who were planning that station, unbeknownst to me. This is the first I was finding out about it, Brian. The people who were planning that station had brought, you know, they got their whiteboard and they're figuring, okay, well, who can we get for a lineup? And they threw my name up there because Sean's won the smack off on the Rome show five times. There's probably more people that know who Sean is in this town than some other radio host that we could steal from another station. Um, But that's the first I found out about it was when I reached out to Chance with that email with the resume, um, with Joe's resume attached to it. Um, and, And so... Chance and I had a, you know, we had a brief conversation. He couldn't tell me a lot because these guys were all still with Sports Radio 610 at the time, which is ironically now my employer. <laughs> you know, I changed stations a couple of years ago. So, but, uh, but Chance said, I can't tell you who, but someone's going to be calling you in the next 48 hours with more details. I said, okay, cool. Hang up. 
And it's still negative 11 degrees. Hell, it might even have been negative 12 at that point. Who knows? But I, I'm, I'm going, okay, well, you know, I, I should just stay in this car because good things seem to be happening. Five minutes later, the phone rings. I haven't even gotten out of the car yet. And it's a, it's a friend of mine named John Granado, who was the morning host at the time, who went on to be the VP of programming and putting the lineup together at the new station, which was 1560, which was the station you and I first ever talked on, me, you, and John Harris. And it was John. And this is the person who was going to be calling me in the next 48 hours. Chance must have called him, said, Sean, seems like he's interested. John calls me back. And this is, I don't know, this is a good lesson to... I always tell this to college kids when I go speak at colleges to tell them my story is this is a lesson. What I'm about to tell you is a lesson in networking and relationships because my entire job interview to get my first radio job in a world where people are going from this town to that town to this town to that town to get to Houston and towns as big as Houston. My whole interview to get into radio was John. I pick up the phone. I said, what's up, John? He said, so you coming? Wow. Three words, and that was it. And, uh, you know, I think we had some things to work on after that contractually and stuff, but my, you know, but I, I committed to John on that phone call. I want to go do this. And even though, like, I knew I was never going to get a chance again. Wait, when you're committing radio, to John, is that in the house or you're still in the, you're still I'm in the, still in the car. You're still I in the car. I haven't gone to the house yet. I haven't even gone to the house yet. I'm saying, John, I want to do this. And they, they still had some things on their end they had to work out just with, financing and getting the transmitter and getting the, you know, all the investors all squared away and everything, you know, there were still details, but I said, John, at that station, if you get everything lined up and start up, I, I will come to Houston and I, I will be part of this radio station. And because I, it, it, when you get that phone call at that moment, Brian, like that's a, that's a sign. You know what I mean? Yeah. I was going to ask you, is there any uh, religion in your background? Any, any sort of, you go to Notre Dame. Uh, yeah. What, what uh, like, like you just said, it's a sign. How do you, how did you make sense? Like, literally, I want to make sure I'm, I'm following the story accurately. Yeah. Like yeah. I've got you, um, getting fired from your job Yeah. in that same day, you're yeah. getting offered an opportunity because you reach out to them about yeah. helping a friend of yours yeah. and in the same day, they're offering yeah. you a job. And, and, and this is something that you've thought about doing for a long time. Yeah. Uh, Am I following that all correctly? hundred percent, hundred percent. It all happened the same day. And, um, and you know, it was one of those things The the previous Sean would have probably assessed things, crunched the numbers a little bit better, certainly. Um, because you know, what people need to understand with local radio is that it takes a while before you make any, anything, Certainly anything even close to resembling what I was making at the, I mean, I'm, I, I will, if I stay in local radio, I don't know if I'll ever get back to what I was making as a VP of sales for a telecom company. But at the time it was a gigantic pay cut, but the, you know, it's, it's weird just how serendipitous it was, Brian, that at like my darkest moment, I got offered the opportunity that I probably should have tried to go chase 15 years ago. And at that point, man, it was things were so dark for me, just not dark. Like, I mean, I, you know, I wasn't addicted to drugs or anything like that. I wasn't under a bridge, but just dark compared to what I feel like my life expectation should have been at that point. You know, dark, not dark materialistically either, just dark emotionally and just just a lot of regret over decisions, you know, career decisions that I may have made and not not going for what would have been my dream job back when I was 22. And it would have been a lot easier to go do it. 
what do you things think, like that? What do you think your response would have been to that phone call if you were still in your in your job? I, I can tell you what it would have been because it's a lot like the Jim Rome thing I told you about in 2003. You know, like I Jim offered me that job. It was actually Travis Rogers who was produ- his producer at the time who called and kind of said, "Hey, here's what we're thinking." You know, Jim was getting his TV show. If you remember, he had a TV show, "Rome Is Burning," on ESPN. They needed another writer for that, so. 2003, Sean sat down and pulled out his W-2s and looked up, looked up real estate ads in Los Angeles, you know, and spent a few days kind of thinking about it. Very practical, and, logical. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, looked up school systems. You know, my kids are kindergarten age at the time, so I'm looking up school systems and, boy, they're going to have to go to private school. Are they going to this and that? And just was very methodical about the decision. And, there, and look, there's something to be methodical about decision making. There's no question about that. Um, but that, that's what would have happened. But, you know, like they, they found me at a time where I didn't have much to lose. You know what I'm saying? Like if things were, things were sliding pretty poorly for me, in my opinion, anyways, I always thought at the time, Brian, and I didn't know if I'd be good at it. It's not like they were offering me a job I had done before. You know what I mean? They were just offering me a job I always wished I could do. Yeah. So, so I, I, uh, I, my thought at the time was, well, I'm going to go do this because, I've been miserable doing what I'm doing. I owe it to myself to go try this. And you know what? If I suck at it, I'll move back to Chicago and get a sales job again, you know, and try to be better at what it is I've been doing the last 15 years. But this I know is if I don't do this, I will hate myself. You know what I mean? Like if I, 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 I won't, you know, I, you know, th- the age I was at at the time is a natural age to, you know, they call it a midlife crisis for a reason. Um, so I, I just I wouldn't have forgiven myself if I didn't say yes to it. So, you know, that was a hard decision. Here's the you know, the issue. <laughs> it, it, it was good for me emotionally to make that decision. But there were a lot of hard things. You know, that there was a financial element to deal with. I did have three kids. My ex-wife was not going to move to Houston. You know, she's she was a realtor and still is a realtor in the Chicago area. So in the, in the town we lived in had great public schools. So I didn't, you know, part of me was like, they should stay there. Those are great schools. And you know what? I'm just going to wind up spending a ton of money on airline tickets and, and doing a lot of FaceTime and Skyping and things like that. It's a little bit easier to be absentee. You know, it's a little bit easier to be geographically removed from your kids in 20 at the time, 2007, than it was, say, in 1997, you know, with the Internet and everything. It wasn't perfect by any means. But, you know, here we are 10 years later, you know, and. My kids are, you know, I've got, they're all three in college. You know, my, my son, I have a sophomore at TCU. My daughter runs track at Oregon. She's a sophomore wow. there. And my, my other son's at Baylor. Um, so they're all, you know, they're all doing great. It's, you know, it was a lot of work, a lot of work by my ex-wife. But um, I, I say all that to say, man, I pushed all my chips into the middle of the table in some ways on this job. But at the time, I just didn't even care. You know, I'm like, I got to go do this. I got to try this. You mentioned something earlier about, you know, what you would say to 22-year-old Sean. Yeah. Um, in, in his choices as far as career path and, and the, the path you went down. Um, if you were 22 again, uh, what would you have done the same? Would you have done things differently uh, as you sit here now? Because I have a lot of listeners. I work with a lot of college athletes. Um, yeah. So they listen to the podcast. Um, what would you say to them as a 22-year-old? Well, I, 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 every college kid I talk to, I say, whatever it is you, 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 whatever it is your dream is right now, you know, whatever that is, whatever the, you know, the goal for any of us, I think, is to find something that we want to wake up and do every day. And if we can get paid for it, then that's awesome. So if you have something that you think is going to, 
you got a reason to get up in the morning. It's going to make you happy, whatever that is, you know, whether it's something that you're, you know, doing something for others or whether it's something that's, you know, whether it's radio or whether it's, I mean, it can be anything. It can, I mean, and don't let, don't let others define what that is. You know what I mean? Like if, Hey man, people make jokes about lawyers all the time. If you think getting up every day and, 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 you know, going through the, 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 the rigors of law school and being a lawyer is what's going to make you happy, man, go chase that. If you think that, you know, getting a loft in the warehouse district and painting stuff is going to make you happy. Cause I do believe that whatever you choose to go do that makes you happy, if you're good enough at it, there's going to be, there'll certainly be satisfaction, but there'll be income probably at the end of it as well. So that's what I tell them, Brian. I say, man, if you've got a dream, whatever it is, then chase it now. Don't, don't go chase, don't, you know, don't do what I did and do something that was completely impractical that really could have put a lot of people in harm's way, my decision. Um, you know, fortunately it didn't, uh, you know, like just, in it was an irresponsible decision financially. You know, it's something that I, to this day, am still paying for. You know what I mean? Like I, I had to accrue a lot of debt, you know, to invest in myself. But it, again, it was one of those things like, man, but if I can just get, if I can just get from the station I was at over to the biggest station in town in a prime spot. What are the percentage chances of me doing that? Well, once I was in radio, I didn't care because that was my goal. And I just, I, 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 I that, that was what I was going to do. I was going to get, I was going to get from 1560 over to 610 and whatever I needed to do to do that, I was going to do, it took me six years to do it. And you know, now I'm in a, a good spot financially Everybody that needs to get paid back is getting paid back, you know, that kind of thing. You know, understand that your decisions come with ramifications, but the, the younger the age you do them, generally speaking, the less broken glass there's going to be. And so do it now. Do it now when you're not having to worry. You, you know, for most young people, they can make what most people would look at as either risky or irresponsible decisions without impacting a lot of other people. So do it Do it then. You know, I, I you know, you don't need to tell me what your dream is. You know what your dream is. Whatever it is, go chase it now, man. Yeah, and I, I think you hit on a number of things. One is take the risk earlier so you don't have to do it later uh, yeah. and impact people around you. Um, yeah. The second thing is, you know, I went to Syracuse University and our commencement speaker was Billy Joel. And yep. he got up and he sang and he, he put on a show. Um, and That's his awesome. main his main <laughs> line to us was, Love what you do and do what you love. Yeah. Um, and you know, he sat up there and he said, you know, I don't have a doctorate degree, even though he actually did because he got an honorarium. Honorary. Uh, <laughs> uh, I didn't graduate from college and I didn't even graduate from high school, but here I am on stage at this private institution talking to all of you. Um, but one of the things that I think is important to remember uh, for, for young people is like when I was 22, I didn't have a dream. I didn't know what my dream was. Like, yeah. I think a lot of 22 year olds don't know what that dream was. It sounds like yep. you did have a good sense of what your dream would be. But I know for me, like I didn't have a dream. So I think the idea of taking action and just doing things and experiencing different things, you know, for me, that's one of the reasons I wrote the NBA draft website was because I was in grad school. I thought I had found what my dream job was, mm -hmm. um, but I wasn't positive about it until I really got into it. So yep. I just did a bunch of stuff which was risky. Um, it was yeah. risky to put my thoughts on a paper or a website. It was risky to go onto the radio with someone like you and put myself out there like that and make myself vulnerable. And so yeah. what I'm hearing from you is 
make yourself vulnerable, take the risk then so that you can learn if it's your dream or not. So you can put yourself on a path with the path of least destruction um, in the sense of not, not bringing other people down as you try to find selfishly what you want to do. And by the way, I use that term selfishly because Mm -hmm. I think selfish gets a bad rap. Um, I actually think too many people aren't selfish enough with what they want to do with their life, Uh, whether that's relationships or career or, you know, exercise or whatever it might be. And because they're not doing the things to take care of themselves, they actually put themselves in a worse position to take care of the other people. So the best analogy that gets used in leadership is, you know, when the airplane's going down, you put your oxygen mask on first and then you put the child's oxygen mask on. I think a lot of people try to put their children's oxygen mask on and they don't take care of themselves. And then it just leads to ultimate, you know, destruction for everybody. Yeah, that's it, God. That's funny you say that about the word selfish. Because when I when I used to, you know, I hired hundreds of salespeople, you know, back in the day when I was when I was running sales for uh, for that telecom company that I was with, and that was one of the things I looked for in salespeople was somebody who thought selfishly, not in a bad way, but just someone who was relentless. Because that's one of those jobs, Brian, where if you have someone who is relentlessly thinking of themselves, that's exactly what you want in a salesperson, man, because that's what that's, you know, ultimately, you know, when you're in, when you're in sales, um, you know, your income is tied directly to the comp plan and the comp plan drives the behavior, man. And so it's funny, you know, I think you and I are talking about a different type of selfish, but I think on the same side of the fence as where that word gets defined by people. You know, we get slapped on the wrist so many times when we're five and six years old about grabbing somebody's, you know, ice cream cone or whatever it is. Like, don't be selfish, you know, share with others, things like that. And that's absolutely, you know, that's another thing I love what I do, love about what I do now is the impact that you get to have in radio just in terms of speaking for charities and raising money. You know, you've got a platform now when you're in radio. So I love that. But I think what you say there about the word selfish is just so true, man. Like there is, there is such thing as good selfish. Yeah. And to me, it's, it's making it selfish so that I can then be selfless. Yes. So like I worked in sales for three years, um, out of college. That was my first job because I was, I was a lost puppy and it was, you know, 2006 and and that's people would hire me to go sell stuff and I was decent at it. And um, to be honest, I, I think I wasn't selfish enough. And then in turn, I could not be selfless to find out what my client really needed um, yeah. because I wasn't focused on, all right, how do I get the sale? Well, how I get the sale is by finding out what they need and how they yeah. need it so that I can then give it to them. So it's a yep. two part dance. The first part is, hey, be selfish enough to know that you want the sale. And then the second part is I'm going to be selfless enough to listen, to ask really good questions to yep. th- so that I can then serve them. And I think yep. that there's a metaphor in life there too, which is like, hey, if I want to have a good relationship with my spouse, I need to take care of myself first and then I can serve my spouse. Hey, if we want to, if we want to take care of our kids, we need to have a good relationship as a husband and wife or husband and husband or whatever your marriage situation is um, so that we can then take care of the kids. I think where a lot of us get lost and, and I get lost in it too. Sometimes I'm not perfect is that we try to help them first and all of a sudden we aren't happy and we can't, take care of them to be selfless. And I think money works that way too, where it's like a lot of people are like, Oh, don't make money or don't do this. Your issue wasn't that you were making a lot of money in sales. Your issue is that that there, there might've been other 
things that were going on in your life from a self-fulfillment or a happiness standpoint that you weren't getting from the dollars. Um, so like people that say that money doesn't matter, I take issue with that. I'm like, money can, money can lead to happiness if you spend yeah. it, if you spend it the right way, um, yeah. if you leverage it the right way. The issue yep. is when you attach the happiness to the BMW and the big house, that's no where you run into some issues. Yeah, I, I think I've, I've always felt like that the blanket statement of money doesn't buy happiness is is uh, is a bit of an insult to money. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and 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 I say that because I do feel like that that money can make a, a, an already happy person incrementally happier. You know what I mean? It can it it can bring you things that uh, that allow you to to be more, to have your life be more fulfilled, to, to, to make sure that your kids have the best education or to uh, make sure that your kids don't want for anything, to make sure that you can be uh, involved in charitable causes to some degree. You know what I mean? Like um, everybody's definition of happiness is a different thing, but to think that you don't need, you know, like in companies, we, the company I was with, we always used to say, there's no problem that more revenue can't solve. And I don't feel like that's necessarily the case in life. But I feel like there are a lot of problems that more revenue or more money or more income can solve. You know what I mean? Well, when you have security, you then are in a position of power to go do amazing things. That doesn't mean that just because you're secure that you're going to go take that step to go do those That's amazing right. things. Um, yep. And I look at our country right now, and I'm not going to dive into politics, but yep. um, I think there is a disconnect because I think there are people that are secure and mm -hmm. can put themselves in a position to go do other things. And then yep. I think a lot of the uproar in our country is when people are insecure um, and they, you know, they, they have to worry about different things than people that are secure. Um, yep. But I want to, I want to go back into your experience in sales and also find out about how that helped you as you transitioned to radio. So yeah. um, you're now in Houston, you're doing a job that you've never done before. So it's one thing to do some smack talk on the Jim Rome show. It's yeah. a whole nother thing to fill. I don't know how many hours you had to fill on radio, uh, but talk about that transition. What was it like for you? And I really would love to find out that first day on the job where you yeah. walk in, um, you know, you put the headset on, you're mic'd yeah. up. Uh, walk us to that first day on the job and what that was like for you. Yeah, it was... Uh... The, I'll, I'll answer it in, in reverse order. Just the, you know, the first day was, uh, <laughs> the first, emotionally it was pretty exhilarating. Like it was, you know, like it was pretty cool, like sitting down in that chair. And here's what was funny about that station that I was at is the guy that they put me with as a co-host who you remember John Harris, cause you, you used to come on our show. Yep. Johnny had never done radio either. He had been, Johnny was an accountant. Okay. And a former high school football coach. Ivy League graduate, he went to Brown, who did, who in his spare time was like the Brian Levinson of college football. He, he wrote for free for college football news, these gigantic draft write-ups and game predictions. And, and as a result, he would get called to do a lot of radio around the country. So he had a lot of audio out there of him doing hits on radio, but he had never hosted a show before. So my first day that I moved back to Houston was July 23rd, 2007. Our first show was August 20th, 2007. I had never met John before. So John and I had four weeks to get to know each other. And I remember we hit it off right away because we were, you know, similar ages, similar backgrounds, similar emotional parallelism. You know what I mean? Like Johnny was like the accountant version of me. Like he was so miserable in his job. And he realized in doing all that college football stuff that there was a calling for him that was just that he didn't chase 
back when he maybe should have, you know what I mean? That sort of thing. So you've got these two highly motivated, driven people that are geeking out that they're going to get to do what they are passionate about doing every day. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And you know, which is a great lesson in just, yeah, man, you know what, instead of finding the perfectly trained people, go find enthusiastic people that, that are thankful to be there every day. You know what I mean? Like you see a lot of people in the radio business, especially the longer they're in it, that just get jaded because that's the only job environment they've ever been in. And I always tell them, I'm like, man, you don't even have a real job. Like none of us do. Don't tell anybody, man. You know, like this isn't, this is fun, you know? So, um, so Johnny and Sean, I, Sean, yeah. just, just to uh, hit on that real quick. Sure. I think that is one of the biggest thing I see, biggest things I see in the sports industry. Um, I think people get into sports because they were little kids and they loved watching it and they loved playing it. Um, so sports is an easy thing to sink your teeth into, but once you're in it, 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 it's a job. I mean, like any job it, you know, you start making money and, um, you know, and I think a lot of people that are just in it from day one, um, lose the perspective of what they felt. If they asked a 12 year old them, what it would be like if, to be doing their job. Now the 12 year old would slap them over the face and be yeah. like, you're the luckiest guy. Like, like, like pinch them. Like, like they did in Billy Madison, like stay here. Like, um, and, uh, so I do see that. And, and you mentioned the word gratitude. Like to me, yeah. when, when we're grateful or enthusiastic, the other word. And, and if you listen to Harbaugh at Michigan, like, you know, he's always talking about enthusiasm and say what you want about that guy. But like, he does not lack for enthusiasm for his gig. Um, and I think you'll find that in a lot of great performers, whether they are athletes, actors, musicians, um, that they have an enthusiasm and a gratitude to yeah. do what they do. Kobe Bryant used to say, I, I like to have the mindset that I'm the last guy on the roster and, and I never yeah. want to forget that like this can be taken away from me. Isaiah Thomas, uh, the new Isaiah Thomas, his mantra is stay paranoid because he's the last pick in the NBA draft. Yeah. So yeah. like, I think that is a key to success that people lose track of. And when they lose track of it, um, it impacts our performance. If we lose the gratitude, we lose the enthusiasm. It will come across in our voice. It will come across in our body language. Yeah. Um, it will come across in our, in our work. Um, yeah. So, so I don't want to. I don't. I want to hammer that home a little bit because I think it's it's really worth mentioning. Is as you and John developed this partnership, you had a shared gratitude and enthusiasm for the work that you're about to embark on. No doubt, no doubt. Yeah, and gra it's funny. You know, I go to those the college. You know, speaking at college kids and things like that, and I always get what's the one piece of advice that you would that you would give um, to you know one just one piece of advice. If you had to give them one piece of advice, I always tell them handwritten thank you notes. Nobody does them anymore. You know what I mean? Like if you, you can express in writing that you're thankful to people like that will set you apart. I guarantee you, you will, you will get a, either get a job or get ahead in some way because you took the time, you took five minutes to tell somebody how thankful you were in your own handwriting. It's more, that much more personal. Anyways, that's that, an aside to the gratitude part of what you were talking about, Brian, I'm a big believer in overthinking people as opposed to underthinking people. Um, yeah, so they kind of kicked Johnny and I into the deep end of the pool together. We had about four weeks to get to know each other. Um, we had never done any of this stuff before. Funny story. Um, our very first Texans training camp, um, July is training camp started July, whatever the week was, I guess July 30th. So the week after that Monday, when we got there, July 30th, 2007, and Johnny and I had never been to a training camp before for the NFL, but we got our, you know, they the station submitted all the names they needed for credentials and things like that. 
The first practice started at 8.30 a.m. July 30th, 2007 at the Texans Outdoor Training Center across the street from NRG Stadium. And Johnny and I are like, okay, it's 8.30, so what time What time should we be there? You know what I mean? Like, nobody's telling us anything. Like, we're, like we are supremely untrained. So I'm like, okay, we don't want to be late because we got to pick up our credential and everything. So why don't, why don't you and I meet at the station at 6.30? You know, traffic in Houston is kind of bad. We'll make sure we get there at least a little bit early. So we meet at the station at 6.30. Turns out there's almost no traffic that morning for some reason, probably because it's still July and everybody's on vacation. Johnny and I pull into the parking lot for the Texans training camp. We're there before like any of the players. Like we're the part. It was like the scene in Vacation with Wally World. Like we're the only car parked in the parking lot, and it's like 6:50 a.m. Like we're like that's how dorked out we were about going to Texans training camp. We're sitting there by ourselves. I'll never forget the Texans for the first day of training camp set up like this huge area where kids can show up because the fans come out there. I would imagine it's not going to be negative negative 11. No, dude, July 30th. No, it was like 102. (laughs) So (laughs) you're right. You're not in Kansas anymore, right? You're not in Chicago anymore. (laughs) No, I'm melting. Um, So they had this kids area where they set up like all those big inflatable slides and everything where the kids can play. And the truck, the truck for the inflatables pulls in, come and the guy gets out and walks over and knocks on our window. He goes, Are you the guys that are supposed to let us in here to, to put up these? Like we were there before everybody, like including the people that were like supposed to be there to set up the inflatables. So that's the level of enthusiasm we had about our job and where we were. And in and our first day, I'll never forget, I was over at I was over at John Granado's house the night before our first day on the air. It was so John Granado is the producer. He, he, he's he's the VP of programming who was also going to be the host of the morning show. Okay. But he was responsible for putting the lineup together. So he's the one basically who hired me and John. You want to hear the irony in the whole thing too? And, and, and Johnny and I being so clueless about the Texans' procedures for training camp and this and that. This is 10 years ago. Today – I am the host of the post-game show for the Texans on their flagship station, and John Harris is their sideline reporter and has an office, works for the Texans, has an office in NRG Stadium, does all of their web videos and content and stuff like that. It's it, 10 years, right? Like, um, like I think about 10 years, and we often think, like, you know, that's not that long ago. At least, like, when you get to a certain age, you don't think 10 years is that big a deal. Right. But, like, look at that. In 10 years, you go from really – you know, being a salesperson living in Illinois and yeah. now you are, and, and and even you are outside ask, you know, people asking you if you're there to inflate some blowups to actually doing the post game show. I mean, it's just, yeah. it's remarkable. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like it, on that date, when Johnny and I are sitting in that parking lot, we were nobodies in the business. The, the ecosystem that we chose to walk into, I was a big, you know, swing and whatever in the sales world, you know, the ecosystem we walked into, man, we were 10-day contract guy at the end of the bench. You know, we were on the fourth station that hadn't even gone on the air yet. Uh, I'm at John Granado's house the night before we're getting ready to go on the air. He and I are having a drink by his pool, getting ready to kind of toast and say, hey, man, to this new venture we're off on. Because it was a big decision for John to do that, too. John was an established voice. John was the sideline reporter for the Houston Texans when the, when the team was born in 2002. John, everybody knows John Granado in this town. So this is a big, this is a big risky move for him too. We get a phone call while we're sitting by the pool Sunday night before we're getting ready to go on the air. The transmitter blew up. Wow. And so like, well, 
we've still got to go on the air tomorrow. We got to do, you know, we, we promised everybody we go on. The worst thing we can do is not go on the air on August 20th. In retrospect, I, I don't know. We shouldn't have waited a little longer. But we went on the air. They, they, they made some makeshift. I don't know. They took a bunch of coat hangers out there and hung them from the tram. I don't know what they did. We went on the air. We had a radius of probably just a few miles. But we went on the air that morning. And, uh, and uh, you know, John did the morning show. And Johnny, uh, John Granado did the morning show. And then John Harris and I went on. I think we were three to seven, maybe two to six. I can't remember which. Um, but, I, you know, I still have those first couple, few shows. I have a lot of segments from those first few months we were on the air. And they sound like – it's funny, Brian, because they, like, they sound rough if you're a classically trained broadcaster. But when I listen to them, I'm like, man, I can just tell, like, how – how excited Johnny and I are to be on the air. You know what I mean? And I think people liked our show, the, the small audience that we did have and make no mistake, the station that I was at at 1560, we did not have a big audience in part because the transmitter got better, but never a whole lot better. And there were a whole lot of other issues going on with the station, but, and certainly we as hosts were not perfect, you know, all those things. But the, the first two years at 1560, 2007 to 2009, were the most fun I've ever had in a job in my whole life because mm -hmm. we, and, and in my personal life, it was terrible because I'm having to fly my kids back and forth, you know, having to go through, you know, the conversations about how I'm not coming back to Chicago anytime soon. Um, you know, uh, uh, financially, you know, I'm, I'm sending checks to my ex-wife that my savings is just dwindling, but professionally I was never happier. It was so much fun because we were the fourth station Johnny Harris and I even being on the air was the definition of coloring outside the lines. But even beyond that, we colored outside the lines, man. Like we tried things and we really shook things up. I mean, we shook things up enough to where when we first started getting ratings, our ratings were pretty close to 610. And that forced 610 to change their entire management team. And Gavin Spittle is the name of the guy who came in to be the new PD at 610 in 2009. He runs Dallas now for intercom. Um, but uh, but he he came in and, and you know kind of rebuilt six ten and and you know and now that's my goal after those first two years was always to get over to six ten like that's where I knew I you know you want to be in the you want to back clean up for the Yankees you know what I mean that kind of thing. Sean, did anyone coach you or mentor you as you transitioned? Is there anyone that gave you advice uh, that was helpful that you remember? Yeah, yeah. I mean, internally, I mean, I don't think I'm speaking out of school by saying this. Like, we didn't get a ton of coaching Johnny and I internally other than just the basics of like, Hey, you got to stay on the clock, you know, play the hits, that kind of thing, you know, you know, make sure your topics are on point, this and that. Um, but I'll tell you, like um, when I, when it was became public knowledge that I was moving to Houston to take this radio job and it was in the Houston Chronicle, Jim Rome actually called me and said, Hey man, you, you know, you turned my job offer down a few years ago. I didn't even know you're looking to get into radio. Jim, and that conversation, he spent a good hour on the phone with me, giving me advice on things. Who better to get advice from than someone like that who's been super successful? Um, but so, so he was definitely one of them. Um, I'll be honest with you, the guy I just mentioned, Gavin Spittle, who was became the PD at six ten. What's PD? Because um, I don't know what that is. Pro program director. Sorry, okay. yeah, pro program director. So he was responsible for the lineup at six ten. Um, you know, one of my goals within Gavin's first year, there was to befriend him. When I knew I wanted to get over to 610, well, now I know I need to put my networking skills to work with 610 people. 
I always tried to make a point, you know, when we were that upstart station, that fourth station, there was a lot of encouragement to bash other stations and things like that to try to get known. I, I wasn't big into that because I, I didn't want to burn any bridges. I knew that's, I, I knew that I didn't, that wasn't where I wanted to be forever. And so the last thing I wanted to do was blow up the bridge to the next place I wanted to be. Um, so when Gavin got that job with 610, I would always make a point. He was always at the Texan games because 610 is the flagship for the Texans. I made a point to go introduce myself to him. And I remember when I introduced myself to him in 2010, maybe, um, I remember him saying, yeah, I listened to you and John Harris. Man, I really like your show. Uh, you guys are, I'm like, oh, okay, well, this is good. You know, he, you know, he knows who I am. He knows the co-host. So then I interviewed with Gavin a couple years after that for a, uh, for a, a morning opening. The, one of the spots in the morning opened up. I didn't end up getting, I actually went to a Syracuse guy, Nick Wright, who's on Fox now. Yep. Um, and Nick's a good friend. Um, but I interviewed with Gavin and, I, you know, this is the thing about interview. You know, this is, I guess this is just general advice too I would give to people is, is if you get an offer to interview for something, for a job, I'm not saying do it to the extent that it's overrunning your life, but even if you don't think you're going to get that job, but it's a job that you want, interview for it because you'll learn things from that interview. And most good job interviews want the interviewee to be asking the questions because it mm -hmm. shows interest. So even just interviewing for Nick's job, one, put me on the map over at 610 from an interview standpoint. They liked me. The main thing that I couldn't get over there for was because my contract had all kinds of really horrible language in it about non-competes and stuff. So I knew my next contract that I did with 1560 shouldn't have that language in it, that kind of thing. So I got that, like, that was the advice I got from Gavin in addition to just radio stuff was, you know, make sure contractually, you know, you're not encumbered by a lot of things. If you're at the place you don't want to be forever, sure enough, a job opens up in the afternoon uh, a year later over there. And Gavin had been gone by that point, but his his successor, who's now my boss, was a friend of Gavin's. And I'm sure there was conversations that they had had about to fill that afternoon that I was already sort of on the grid. So, um, you know, it's kind of a lesson in networking. But Gavin was great about uh, giving me advice. And Sean, I know there's another Sean, part of your, I know I got to yeah, get to the sales part of your question. Too. Yeah, that's you the know? part. Because as I hear you describe this, that's exactly where I was about to go. It's like, yeah. Um, I'm curious if you do you think you'd be where you are today if you didn't have that sales background? That's interesting you say that, Brian, because yeah, you know, who knows? Maybe those 15 years of sales are what I needed to thrive and what it, you know, in what I eventually was put on this earth to do, at least what I feel like I was put on earth to do at age 40 48 that I am right now. Um so I I definitely think my 15 years in sales has made me more self-aware and successful in this job. And here's why I say that is that no, no company exists without revenue and no revenue comes in without salespeople. And the company, the startup company that I had worked for for 10 years and worked my way up in the CEO of that company, he didn't have a college degree. He was a career sales guy. And he worked from being, you know, like a, like a nobody to being the CEO of this company and having all these relationships with these investment banks because the guy's an amazing salesperson. He created that company to specifically be a sales-driven company. He created that company more than anything else to hire great salespeople. You know, his feeling always was just go get great salespeople. It doesn't matter what you're selling. You can teach them the product, but the sales stuff is innate. You know, the sales, that, those are things that are, that are born. 
So it was a sales-driven company. So I was raised, so to speak, corporately in an environment where the people around the office who weren't salespeople were told in no uncertain terms, if a salesperson with our company calls you for anything, you drop whatever it is you're doing and you do it for you do for the salesperson because they're responsible for the revenue. Which is very rare, I would imagine. Very. In your in your line of work now, if you have a radio host, like just from me listening to sports talk radio, yeah. they they don't want to have to deal with. Uh, generally speaking, they often don't want to have to deal with the salespeople. They don't. They don't. And so so I came into radio with a completely different mindset. You know what I mean? I came into radio with this mindset like yeah this is a different industry because it's something that i actually want to go you know like yeah radio is a different industry but it's not all the way different like it's still a business you still need to bring money in so i i came in and, I, and i'm not a salesperson anymore you know i'm a radio host so now i'm in one of those positions that pat martucci the ceo of united asset coverage my old boss I'm in one of those positions where I've been schooled to say, well, the salesperson calls me with any sort of need. I need to drop what it is I'm doing and go help that person. You know what I mean? So if a salesperson needs me to go on a sales call, dude, I love going on sales calls. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, I, if they need me to go on a sales call, I'll go on a sales call with them. If they need me to re-record a spot, man, in that next break, I go into the next studio and I'm re-recording that spot because they need it right away. I think if you asked any of the salespeople at the station I'm at, you know, if I'm easy to work with, they would tell you, yeah, Sean's a dream to work with because he used to be one of us. You know what I mean? He used to be a salesperson. And so, but I go back, I would go back to when you were a listener and you were eating up all of the ads that the, uh, yeah. they, they had on radio. Like, all right, I'm going to use the carpet cleaner. Like you value the sale. I'll tell you a quick story and then we'll come back to you. Uh, yeah. Chris Grant, who ended up being the general manager of the Cleveland Cavaliers and now works yeah. for the San Antonio Spurs. We've had on the podcast before. Uh, and I first met Chris, gosh, it was probably 2005. And I had a summer job doing telemarketing for the Atlanta Hawks and the Atlanta Thrashers. So I moved to Atlanta and I'm banging out calls every day, hopefully like 60, 70, 80 calls a day. And I'm just calling random people. And, you know, we had our little cubicle and our spreadsheet or whatever, and we're just calling. It's not a glamorous job, um, but I learned a lot from it. But Chris used to come into our room as the assistant general manager to the Atlanta Hawks and say, guys, let me know if you want me to jump on the phone with somebody if they're interested in buying tickets. Um, and we never saw anybody from the sports side. Like, here was the assistant GM saying, guys, you know, I know that you are the lifeblood of this organization. And I've worked with sports organizations in the past. And I often like wonder, how do you create a culture where that exists, where the players, for example, are having relationships with the yeah. salespeople? Because it really is very, very simple in sports. If the salespeople are, are killing it and doing a great job, the players are going to get their money. Yep. Um, if that, if that arena is empty, um, and, and we can even get into ad sales and sweet sales and there's other salespeople that work in a sports organization, but if they are doing great, those players are going to get taken care of the yeah. TV, the TV sales are what drives the revenue, which is what they literally get paid for. And I always wonder how you can make a better connection within a sports organization to do that because it really is a pretty simple correlation there and it sounds like something that you've helped develop a culture at your radio station yeah. where where you know that you Sean are going to 
get rewarded if the salespeople have support. And I yeah. think a lot of people don't always have that in their organization. They definitely don't in radio. And I, you know, I don't know, like, I, I feel like my, you know, my experience with it is it has to come from the top down. You know what I mean? Like it has to, the reason we were so sales driven at, at, in my, at UAC, the telecom company I was with is because the CEO hammered it home and it kept everybody in the organization accountable for that. You know, like, so there was almost this healthy fear of not helping us say, you know, not this, not this, uh, not this fear that just smothered the organization, but just a healthy fear of, I better help this salesperson. You know what I mean? I, Cause I'm going to be held accountable for this if I don't. So I almost think it needs to come from the top down. Yeah. Like I can't say that I've come in with that mentality to the station I'm at. And now it just pervades the entire, uh, uh, broadcast, you know, the on-air part. Um, because I, you know, I don't, I'm not in that position of influence to make it a, a demandment or a commandment, so to speak. But hopefully other people observe it and they go, wow, Sean's getting a decent number of sponsors. Maybe if, I, if I'm more amenable to going on sales calls or I'm more amenable to stopping by and dropping off a Christmas gift for my clients or I'm, you know, I, I invite them to an event or I retweet their stuff or I, you know, social media, I post something about them, how awesome they are on Facebook, all those little things. That's where my sales background has really helped me, Brian, is 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 in specifically in sales. You know what I mean? In, you know, because there's a big variable element to my income. Like I I get paid. I have a salary, but just as big a portion of what I make is based on the number of companies that I'm speaking for and doing live reads for. You know what I mean? So there's definitely a selfish element of me helping salespeople because it directly comes back to me financially as well. Um, but you know, the, the hands all shake, you know, you're, it, it's all a synergistic kind of thing. You know I mean? Who cares what the motivation is as long as it's something where everybody is helping make each other better at their jobs. Yeah. So I want to pivot a little bit and find out what your mindset's like when you do go on air. So, sure. um, and, and maybe how it's changed over the years. So you have those first couple of years where, um, you know, you're learning, you're growing, uh, you're yeah. just bringing the enthusiasm, the gratitude. You're just probably ener energizing uh, from your energy and your passion and your authenticity that is carrying forward. Yeah. Is, I'm sure you're still bringing that. But what has changed from a mental standpoint or a mindset standpoint as you approach um, going on air? I would say um, my the, the biggest thing that I figured out the first couple years was it wasn't just going to be about the show that John and I were doing those four hours a day. The world kind of changed at about that time too, from a, an entertainment or a, a, a broadcasting standpoint with social media, you know, and with video and with podcasts and with things like that. So my, my thing the, for after the first couple of years was, okay, I need to do as many things as I can possibly do these first few years, especially when I'm doing them sort of off the grid no disrespect to the station that I started with, um, but, you know, I'm doing them in front of a smaller audience, so I'm making mistakes and learning, you know, almost like the D-League, you know what I mean? Like, I'm doing, I'm, I'm making all my mistakes here so that when I go to somewhere that's a bigger platform, then, then I'm, I'm going to sound better. Um, so I wanted to do as much stuff, you know, I, I, in 2009, I started writing for the Houston Press, and to this day, I still do a daily column for the Houston Press. So I, that was another thing I didn't know I could do. You know what I mean? I didn't know I could write. Can you compare writing versus being on air and how you uh, toggle those two? Yeah. I, I tr you know, um, it's it's been helpful for me because a lot of the stuff that I write about, I end up 
I end up creating content for myself. Writing Sean ends up creating content for on-air Sean in a lot of ways. You know, I can sort of, I wrote this article for the Houston Press today about, you know, where we rated the 11 draft classes of Rick Smith. You know, with this new general manager coming in for the Texans, he needs to, you know, he, where, does, where do his draft classes need to stack up amongst the, that kind of thing. Um, I, I like the on-air stuff better just because that's what I've always wanted to do. And, and the writing, to me, <laughs> the writing is such a permanent thing that's out there that I'm almost not a perfectionist. But I don't ever want to just write something just to slap it up there and make sure I get my, you know, my per column fee that I charge to the Houston Press. I want it to have a, a beginning, a middle, and an end. I want people to feel like they've, excuse me, like they've learned something from it. I want them to feel like they laughed at some point along the way. All the same things I try and accomplish on the air, I try and accomplish to a different degree with the writing stuff. Um, but that was one of those things, like they asked a buddy of mine to write for them back in 2009. The Houston Press did. He was already writing for the Chronicle. But he's like, hey, Sean may be good at this. You know, he's funny on the air and he's, you know, I'm in a fantasy football league with him where his newsletter at the end of the year is really hilarious. So maybe he can write. And within a year, I was doing cover features for the Houston Press. You know, it's a weekly print or was until they went all Internet uh, a couple months ago. But I, it was one of those other things that I found out I could do that I didn't know I could do. Um, so I wanted to write. I wanted to do, you know, when I get asked to do any sort of TV here in Houston during football season, you know, they view me as somebody who knows a lot about the Texans because I work at 610 and they hear me and they read me. I go do any TV I get a chance to do. I do video. I do stuff like what you and I are doing right now because to me, the local show is where most of my income comes from. That's, I always compare it to like, uh, more, uh, like Marble Slab or Cold Stone where my show is like the ice cream. And then all the other stuff is all the other, you know, all the junk that you're throwing, you know, like the, the, the Houston press stuff is like the butterfinger, the crushed up butterfinger and the gummy bears. And this, you know, you got the one thing that holds it all together, but I've got all these little things that get sprinkled in that make the whole, you know, the, the make the whole better than the sum of the parts. But you like to play the long game. As I hear your story, it's like, you're going to do those little things because, you know, it, it, it might help you in the long run and because it's the yeah. right thing to do. And um, it probably is how you like to live your life. It's like, I'm not just going to do what's going to help me now. Mm -hmm. um, I'm also going to plant seeds here, plant seeds there. And if you think about your job offer right from the get-go, it came from planting seeds uh, yeah. over the years and then it flourished. And I think a lot of people uh, expect for flourishing just to happen. Yeah. And, you know, it was because all these actions that you take along the way, the relationships you built, um, you're playing the long game and you're going into different funnels so that, yep. look, Radio might not exist in 10 years. I don't know. Yeah. Newspa yeah. Newspaper certainly may not exist in 10 years. 100%. TV, TV, we don't know where TV is going. So there's yep. a lot of unknown. Um, so we talked about risk a lot, but you're mitigating risk every time totally. you take another uh, avenue so that you can adapt and adjust to whatever comes next because we don't know what comes next. We predict and we think and we hypothesize, but for yep. you, you're gonna, you're going to be entrepreneurial in the way that you're spreading your wings. Yep. You're still going to remember the foundation of what the cold stone slab is. You're still going to focus on doing that really well, but you're going to add in all these other pieces. And I talk about that when I work with athletes all the time, I'm like, the main thing for you is performing on the field, the court, the ice, the golf course, whatever it is that you do. But that doesn't mean you still can't, create all these other opportunities for yourself. And yeah. I think it's kind of a joke when we um, come down hard on athletes for exploring other opportunities outside their sport. Like they're just supposed to be athletes 24 hours a day, seven days yeah. a week. Like it's just not realistic, especially in a um, business that is so short um, career wise. It, it doesn't, it doesn't, 
uh, you know, especially football, you know, three average, average lifespan is three years. Um, so I think your ability to spread your wings and go into those different places is, is probably what's helped got you to where you are today. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. You just said a few things in there that made me think of, 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 of some stuff. Uh, yeah. Being versatile, being nimble. If something gets ripped out from underneath you, you always have a plan B. And you asked me before people who've given me advice along the way. Um, another one who I would be totally remiss not to mention, um, WWE fans know who he is, but Jim Ross, who is the, you know, he's the voice of what, you know, he's the voice of Monday night raw for a number of years, black cowboy hat, you know, good old JR. Um, I met him at the Paul Bear Bryan Awards in 2008. In fact, it was it was 10 years ago today because he and I just tweeted back and forth about it before you and I uh, get, went on the air. He sat down and he, he happened to be at the Bear Bryan Awards because he's a big OU fan and Bob Stoops was there and Barry Switzer was getting the, the Lifetime Achievement Award. And JR sat down with me and Johnny and did an interview with us. You know, that was when he was at the height of his popularity with WWE. And afterwards, the interview, and I, I grew up a huge wrestling fan. So after the interview, I said, hey, uh, Jim, that, that was great. Um, what's the best way to keep in touch with you? And he gave me his card. And to this day, he and I are, are great friends. We've been to football. We, you know, he and I went to the Notre Dame OU game together, uh, you know, back-to-back -back years when it was at OU one year and South Bend the next year. He's been, he's been a huge source of advice for me. When I was getting ready to change stations, he was – he, he gave me a lot of advice because I was going to be doing a show. I, I do a show with two other hosts now, which is something I had not done. Um, and I'm the lead host. And JR's booth on Monday Night Raw was a lot of times a three-man booth, and he was steering the ship. So he gave me a lot of advice. You know, hey, man, you're just always, always be – he's got that OU draw. Always be the point guard. You know, just be setting people up, setting people up. You set people up, you'll be set. But it's funny you brought up the athletes and stuff because one of JR's – pieces of life advice that I think is fantastic is you always got to have a plan B. You always got to have a plan B. And, and that's, that's what, that, that's where the whole versatility and doing all the other things comes in is I'm not totally sure what my specific plan B is, but I know that if plan A ever gets removed from me, I'll have plenty of plan B's to choose from and go chase, go chase then. So, um, and the, the other thing I wanted to answer, Brian, just because I don't think I answered it when you asked me what's changed for me from the very beginning to, to where I am now, I'm a much better show planner than I today than I was 10 years ago. I'm much better today at finding topics and things that resonate with an audience than I was 10 years ago, even though I was a listener and I should have known better than anybody what resonates with an audience because I was the audience it's just different when you're having to go find those things as opposed to when you're just sitting in your car listening to them. You know what I mean? And that's come with the coaching that I've gotten since I changed stations. You know, that, that's, that's come with, uh, you know, knowing how to repurpose content. We interviewed Dabo Sweeney two days ago. We were at the Bear Bryant Awards for this season two days ago. And the Texans have so many Clemson guys on the team. It's like we're Clemson Southwest with Deshaun Watson and DeAndre Hopkins, four or five other guys interviewing Dabo Sweeney. Wednesday and then being able to take some of what he said and repurpose it Thursday and today into relevant topics that our audience likes. I've gotten so much better at doing those things. I've gotten better at doing the things that people get taught at, at Syracuse to do. You know what I mean? Like all the things that's why I say like, there's nothing wrong with coming from a classical broadcasting school. Cause you're going to learn the X's and O's, but I brought into this career that I have now the things that are unteachable, like my enthusiasm for it, my want to, all those things, the sales stuff. 
And then now what I've gotten better at are the teachable things. You know what I mean? You know, it's so interesting. So uh, when I heard you talk about your writing, it was so clear that it was methodical, right? Uh, yeah. Beginning, middle, end. I want to have, yeah. have comedy in it. I want to yeah. make a point. Um, yeah. And when I think about writing compared to on air, writing, you know, you can edit, you can you can manipulate, you can have someone else take a look and, you know, give you feedback when you're on air, it's live. You know, there is no real editing. Um, it yeah. just is what it is. This podcast, I'm not going to edit it. I'm just going to let it fly. Um, and, uh, but then when you just described what you've learned about being on air, it sounds like there's an element of the writing that has come to p- come into play with your on air. And totally. the, way, the way I've come to understand this is, um, the mindset for preparation and how we set our mind in preparation is actually different than how we need to set our mind in performance. And to what you're talking about with uh, a kid that went to Syracuse for broadcast journalism, they teach them the preparation. They mm-hmm. teach them, hey, here's what you need to do. Here's how you need to do it. Here's what you need to think about. Very similar to how you would learn how to write. Um, but then there needs to be a shift from the perfectionism, which is the word that you use in writing to the adaptability that we need once we're on air. And so I'm actually writing a book about this, um, which is how we set our mind in preparation is different than how we set our mind in performance. And look, Nick Saban did a beautiful job of this in the national championship game. I'm going into this game. I've got my quarterback. We've got our game plan. All right. We just scored no points at halftime. We need to, we need to adjust it. We need to adapt it. Um, and Nick Saban's a perfectionist. He watches more film. I know people that are on that staff. They tell me he is, he's obsessed, but the moment he's in the game, that's not the time to be perfect. That's the time to adapt, to adjust. And so my whole thing, when I work with people on setting their mind is what we do in our preparation should be different than what we're doing in the game, different when we go on air. And I think what you just said is I, you, Sean, I've now learned that what I'm doing in my preparation needs to be somewhat methodical and thoughtful so that when I get in it, I can pivot, I can adjust, I can adapt to yep. serve the people that are listening to this show and make sure that they're getting value out of this conversation. Yeah, I, I, it's it's weird. Like, it's almost like the preparation in some way, like the preparation in some ways prepares you for the moments that you weren't planning for. You know what I mean? Like it's, you know, because the, what the prep, what the preparation gives me before I go on the air, Brian is I don't want to say the comfort cause I'm never comfortable. And I don't think you ever want to be comfortable on the air. I don't, like comfort is overrated. Um, you know, you want to be nervous going on the air, but a good nervous, you know what I mean? But you at least feel like it's not a nervousness where it's like, okay, I'm going to screw up. It's a nervousness of like, man, what's, what's going to happen? You know, like the, you know, the unknown, that sort of thing. The, the preparation allows you to have the mentality, like, I'm going to succeed at this. I'm nervous about it, but I'm going to succeed at this because I've, I've lined things up. And if you, if you add that, you know, kind of, if you, if you have that, that level of comfort with what you've prepared for in a, in a weird way, it makes that the, the, it makes the pivoting part that you're talking about a little bit easier. You know what I mean? Because chances are whatever you're pivoting over to, you've probably in, in our world, you've probably covered that in some way as well. You know what I'm saying? Like you've probably looked at the, whatever the topic is, if it's a, if you're pivoting within a topic, you've looked at it from a different angle. You've heard somebody else's angle on it. If you're pivoting to another topic from that, you know, chances are you've, you've probably somewhere in your, you know, in your preparation touched on that. I think some of it is a natural ability too. like, there's some certain things when it comes to all that pivoting that you're talking about or the unknown that you can't teach you, you, I mean, you can't teach somebody 
wit or spontaneity or like, okay, you know what? Be funnier. Like you can't teach that. You know what I'm saying? There is a level of, I think, innate, uh, just intrinsic God-given ability to be able to do that stuff, to, to be able to think quickly on the spot, to be able to take that nervousness and translate it positively as opposed to negatively, you know? Um, so, uh, that's, that's one of the things I, you know, I kind of pride myself on is that when the show goes in a direction, you're not anticipating it going, that it's still at the, at the forefront, I just want it to be entertaining and there can be entertainment in, there can be entertainment in going into a place that you haven't totally prepared for. You know what I mean? And if it's something where you feel like, God, I'm screwing this up right now, self-deprecation is a big kind of disarming tactic. You know what I mean? Like being humble, all of those things. Um, the, uh, but you make a great, you make yeah. a great point. The, the, uh, we're all in the business of fulfilling our potential. Right. Yeah. And so like the analogy I use all the time is like Kobe Bryant. I don't think anyone's doubting whether Kobe fulfilled his potential. Now, how did Kobe fulfill his potential? He had this mindset that I'm the last guy on the bench in preparation, so I'm going to wake up at 5 a.m. or 4 a.m. or whatever crazy time he woke up. I'm going to go work with Akeem Olajuwon on post moves. I'm going to be open to learning all these different things. I'm going to talk to Michael Jackson about what his mindset was when he got on stage. Like, uh, befriend Warren Buffett and learn from Warren Buffett. Like, so open there so that when he gets on the court, he's the Black Mamba, and now yeah. I'm just an assassin. I'm going to kill you. Yeah, uh, yeah. Versus Allen Iverson, who like I love Iverson, like, and there's no doubt that when the lights came on, Iverson was going to compete uh, mm -hmm. and he was going to bring it. But you know, they came into the league at the same time. Iverson's out of the league at 32, 33. Kobe's winning MVPs. Uh, yeah, is it because of talent or is it because the way Kobe set his mind for preparation and performance versus Iverson, who definitely set his mind for performance, but I think we all know probably didn't fulfill his potential when it came to preparation. So. Um, I think about that the same way for all of us that are performers is how do we go back and forth in our preparation and our performance? And before we um, started recording, you were telling me about one of the best interviews you ever gave and how yeah. it, it was sort of sprung on you right away. So yeah. tell us about that interview and what that was like. Um, and I think it was just a fascinating story that you started to get into. And then I said, wait, 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 hold on. Let's record this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So, so give, it to, give it to us and, and share sure. a little bit about what that was like. Yeah, I guess I'll preface it just by saying, you know, you and I were talking about Super Bowl week. And in a weird way, like the Bear Bryant Awards I was at a couple of days ago is kind of a, you know, kind of a, almost like a scrimmage for Super Bowl week in that you get a lot of guests dropped on you the week of the Super Bowl that you weren't prepared for. You know, you, you can't, you know, you can try as much as you want to to put your, you know, your grid together of what you think the show is going to look like. You know, I'm, I'm, when I'm done with you, Brian, I got my notebook right here where I'm going to start to, you know, architect the show. But when you're at the Super Bowl and it's Radio Row and they're bringing all these guys around to, to sit down and, and talk to you, it can happen where, okay, uh, you know, Russell Wilson's coming by at 3.15 and then it's 3.20 and they're like, oh, well, no, it's actually going to be like 3.35 now. You know, that happens all the time. You also get guests dropped on you who you weren't prepared for because they, you just, you know, maybe your producer didn't know they were there or maybe they had a cancellation. Now you can get them. And so it's your duty to your audience that if you feel like you have a guest that's compelling enough, it's your duty as a host to be able to on the fly, put together a conversation quickly enough. That's going to be a compelling conversation. You owe that to your audience. Like you, you can't make an excuse to your audience. Those are my customers. You can't make an excuse like, well, I just wasn't prepared. I wasn't prepared to talk to Jerry Rice. Well, what the hell, man, you weren't prepared to talk to Jerry. Rice. So this is a different one though. You, the one you and I are talking about. So, so we're in Phoenix at the Super Bowl. 
people always ask me, what's the, what's the, your favorite interview that you've done or what's the, you know, the best interview that you've done. And I always bring this one up because it's a great story. And I think it's a good lesson for young broadcasters. We're at the Super Bowl in Phoenix, you know, and it's a normal day at the Super Bowl on Radio Row. We've interviewed a few football players, maybe an analyst here and there, whatever. I get a phone call from my friend John McClain, who has covered the NFL for 40 years for the Houston Chronicle. And John is at some NFL event at a different facility where he met Rob O'Neill, who was the, for people who don't know who Rob O'Neill is, he's the guy who shot Osama bin Laden. Rob is a guest of the NFL. He and his dad are a guest of the NFL at the Super Bowl, and they happened to be there. And John had met them before. So John went up and talked to them. And John must have asked Rob, like, are you going to go over to Radio Row? And I guess Rob must have said yes. And John's like, well, do you want to go on with John? John comes on with us every John's part of our station, basically he writes for the Chronicle, but he's he's on one of our shows each day of the week. Um, you know, he's he's a you know, he's part of us. So he John said, well, do you want to go on Sports Radio 610 in Houston? Rob's like, yeah, sure. You know, so during the break, actually during the segment that I'm in, I forget who we're interviewing. I think it might have been Michael Chiklis. We're interviewing from the Who's your doppelganger. He's my Twitter avatar, but we look exactly alike. I think we were in the middle of that interview, and I get a text from John. So here I am interviewing the guy who I've been so psyched about interviewing all week. I get a text from John McClain, and a typical McClain text. Do you want to interview the guy who shot Osama bin Laden? No, no, I don't. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I said, John, in show, let me call you back. So we get done with the Chickless interview, and or whoever it was, and uh, and and I call John. Hello? Yeah. And you got to know John's voice, too. John's got this really, like, gruff voice. You know, he looks like Wilford Brimley and, uh, you know, the mustache and everything. And uh, I said, hey, John. He goes, hey, Sean, you want the guy who shot Osama bin Laden on your show? And I'm like, yeah, that'd be awesome. When, you know, when would we get him? He's coming over right now. (laughs) When I saw the text, I figure it's like for tomorrow or something, you know, like I'll get to prepare. You know, maybe I can go watch one of these movies about... uh, about it or whatever. So I'm about to interview a literal hero. Like, yeah, I love Jerry Rice, Chicklets, like cool guys, like done amazing things. They're not, they're not heroes. Like this guy's, no, they're not. This guy's a hero. So he and literally it was five minutes. He comes over with his dad. He sits down and thankfully we were, we were in a break when he got there. So that's always better because you can, if it's somebody you've never interviewed before, you can kind of break the ice a little bit with them before you go on the air. You know, you say, hey, how's, you know, how's Phoenix treating? You know, little, you know, just BS, little questions like that. Maybe you find something in common. Maybe you find something, you go, we were talking before the interview. Oh, I have no idea what you're talking about. That's exactly exactly how we got to this story. But go on, Sean, not to cut you off. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. So um, not like you and I needed to break the ice or anything, (laughs) Brian. But uh, so he's got there during a break, but I remember I was real quiet during the break. Cause I'm the one who brings us into the show from the break. And with every other guest, it's pretty easy to get a lead question formulated. You know what I mean? Like if you've got, you know, if you've got a football player, it's pretty easy to have a lead question for a guy who's been in the hall of fame or who's won a super bowl, especially on radio row at the super bowl. You know what I mean? Like it's easy to get a first question. I'm sitting there thinking to myself, What's the first question that you ask the guy who shot Osama bin Laden when you haven't had time to prepare for the interview, right? When you just found out five minutes ago you're getting this interview, what's the first question that you ask him? And and my question that I asked him was, I just thought to myself, what, you know, kind of what you were just saying, Brian, like, holy cow, like, this is different. This is not a guy who caught the winning touchdown pass from 
Joe Montana or something like that. This is a guy who changed history. And that was my question. I thought to myself, like, what would I want to know if this guy were here? And I, I always think the best questions are the ones where, where the interviewee brings you somewhere that you haven't been before, right? There's a reason why we all love these 30 for 30s and we love these, these 20 different feeds of, of, of the national championship game, podcasts of guys who are, you know, recounting stories from 10 or 20 years ago of being behind the scenes at certain things. We all love to go places that we're not allowed to go. And so that was the place that I went to when I thought about that first question is, man, what was it like in that room? You know what I mean? Like when you, so my question to him was, at what point after you fired that gun, did you realize you had changed history? Mm. And he said, when the lights came on, you know, oh. you know, and, 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 and the, and the, why he talked about how the wives, he, you know, Bin Laden had multiple wives and they were all going crazy and they were in hysterics. And so they had to calm the wives down, you know, and they had to, but he said he realized right away because when you've been training to do something very specific for that long, you've had so much time to think about it. You know what I mean? So, you know, you realize it that, you know, you kind of realize that your mission is to change history. You know, our mission is to change history. So it was a cool answer. It was a fun interview. It was, uh, I mean, it was, it was a great interview. It was just, he was, it, it was, uh, it was amazing just to to uh, to talk to somebody who uh, had, you know, who was, you know, whose name will go down in history. You know, I want to I want to go back to you for a second. Not that he's not amazing. I'm sure we could do a whole other <laughs> podcast about him. Um, but you showed me your your notebook a few yeah. minutes ago and just said, hey, I'm putting out my show or putting out the times and what yeah. my, my program is going to be like. Right. What do you do to intentionally set your mind? Uh, before you go on air or before you're about to perform? Is there anything else that you intentionally do, specifically do, uh, to make sure that you are where you want to be? Yeah, I just decompress for like a half hour before the show. Like, I, I don't like, I hate doing things at the last minute. You know what I mean? Like, I, I like, I, you know, I was kind of telling you, you know, like, you know, where, where I am time-wise and stuff. It's because in my mind, I'm going, okay, I want to, we're doing our show up in the woodlands today, which is, you know, 45 minutes from my house. So I need, I want to make sure I'm there at like one fifteen or one thirty, so I can go just sit and eat, you know, and, uh, you know, cause we're doing it at a twin peaks up there. So I'm, I just want to go sit, decompress, um, make one last run on Twitter just to make sure I'm not missing anything at like one fifty my time. Cause the show goes on at two. So it's all, yeah. I mean, I, I just got, I, I'm, I'm a pretty routine driven guy for the most part you know, I, I have a checklist of things that I have to make sure that are like really not negotiable that I need to do before a show. Like, can you give us an example of one thing that's, that's on that checklist? That's, that's not negotiable. Yeah. It's, uh, I would say the, the, uh, at eight o'clock by eight o'clock each morning, I've got about five or six different, uh, Twitter feeds that I, and they've all got a column on my tweet deck. So by eight o'clock in the morning, I want to have visited all six of those Twitter feeds with any of the new stories on those Twitter feeds that the, those six Twitter feeds on those columns and the, the stories that are in them represent a matrix to me that I feel like captures about 95% of what's relevant to my audience. So by 8am, I want to have gone to all that. That way, the rest of the morning is just me sort of spatially thinking about the show. Like I want to get all, I'm a big, like get all of the, get all of the tactical stuff out of the way as quick as possible. So it gives me more time to think kind of spatially and strategically about the show. 
you know, I'm big into eating. When I have a plate of food in front of me, I'm going to eat the green beans guy and get that out of the way because I like the steak and the potatoes best, and that's the part I want to enjoy. I always want to be saving the part that I like the most and that I feel is more productive for the, you know, for the, the longer arc of the morning, so to speak. Um, and I, also, if I get that stuff out of the way early and that stuff's not negotiable, that leaves me room to do stuff like the sales stuff. It's, it makes it easier for me to say yes to, hey, can you go on this meeting with me at 1030 tomorrow? That kind of thing. You know what I mean? So if my time is more flexible after I get the non-negotiable, like my non-negotiable time is really any time up to about 8 to 830 and then from about one o'clock on because that's where, you know, like that's where all the, like the morning tactical stuff is before eight. The decompression part before the show is from like 1.30 to, you know, 1.15, 1.30 to 2 o'clock in there. Um, I don't want to be working right up to the show. You know what I mean? I want to go on relaxed. I want to make sure that I'm up to date, which is why I go do one last run through at 1.50. But I don't want to be sitting here going, okay, I don't want to be sitting here on Wikipedia at 1.45, you know, uh, formulating questions for a guest. I'd almost rather they drop a guest on me in show and it forces me just to to be quick than to be handed something at like 1.30 and go, okay, well, now this is something I need to prepare for. You know what I mean? Because I'll feel compelled to prepare for it. You know what I'm saying? Awesome. So, uh, Sean, thank you for the time. Before we end, uh, we could go all day and and we'll have more conversations in the future because this has been a lot of fun. Uh, But before before we go away, uh, you're a big Twitter guy. Uh, Give us your handle. Um, anywhere else where we can find you online or social media and anything that you're involved with that you want to promote. Um, just want to give you the floor to, to do all that. Yeah, cool. It's uh, uh, my Twitter handle is at Sean T Pendergast. Um, it's uh, S E A N T Pendergast. I'm on Facebook. I, I have a, I have a, uh, a fan page on Facebook. You can go like, and I usually post my Houston press stuff up. If you follow me on Twitter and you follow me on Facebook, you'll get all the links that I, of anything that I write for the Houston press You'll get links of podcasts to my local show. Um, you know, if you're somebody who's interested in Houston sports or you're from Houston and you, you're out of market, you'll always get links to our best of podcast during the day with all of our interviews. I do a national show on CBS Sports Radio on Sunday nights from uh, 6 to 10 a.m. Or I'm sorry, 6 to 10 p.m. Sunday nights, Eastern time. Uh, it runs on about 300 stations around the country. So um, that's a solo show. Um, my local show here is with two hosts. So that's, you know, again, that's where the diversity comes in. Like I always told myself when I got into this, all right, I'm going to do a, the first three years, I want to do a solo show. I want to do a show where I'm the lead host. I want to do a show where I'm the react host. And wait, you had that vision for yourself. Like you had that as a goal. Did you write that down or yeah, I did. did. No, no. I I wrote down, I, I wrote down everything that I wanted to try and try and do in the first two or three years, radio wise, I didn't know Twitter was going to become a thing. You know what I mean? I didn't know, uh, you know, I didn't know that I was supposed to be setting a goal to have 20,000 Twitter followers or whatever it is, you know? So, um, but I, but as a host, I did, I said, okay, these are the things I want to, that I want to try. I'm not saying that I want to do, you know, that I want to do like on a, on a long-term or permanent basis. I just want to give these things a try so that I can say that I've done these things. I can tell, I can tell, you know, future employers, like, it make you know, doesn't matter what situation you plug me into. If you think that I'm good on the radio, you can plug me in as a number two. I'll be a number two. You want me to lead a show? I'll lead a show. You want me to be a solo host? I'll be a solo host. So I wanted, and I got to do all of those things the first few years. I did the show with Johnny, um, where I was the lead host. I did a lot of substitute hosting on weekends on national shows where I was the number two. And then I, 
had a midday national show after Johnny and I were done with our run uh, on Yahoo Sports Radio, where I was a solo host for a year. So, um, anyways, so I'm a solo. My my show on CBS Sports Radio is a solo show, uh, four hours every Monday night. Um, and I think that's you know th- those are all the and HoustonPress.com is where if you want to go straight to the Houston Press, you can find my stuff on there. As far as charitable stuff goes, the thing I'm probably most passionate about is helping kids. So I, I've been involved the last few years in doing stuff, helping out a thing called Houston Children's Charity. Um, they, they, uh, one of their initiatives is a better night's sleep where they provide beds for kids who don't have beds. Carlos Correa is very involved in it. Um, so it's it, uh, Houston Children's Charity. I believe it's children's, at Children's Charity on Twitter. It's uh, the, the, the head of the charity is Tillman Fertitta, who's now the owner of the Houston Rockets. So, um, so that's, that's something I'm pretty passionate about. If people want to look into that and there's always little donations you can make. I think a donation of a hundred dollars is able to, uh, make sure that, um, that, uh, one kid sleeps, you know, that, 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 that gets the job done for getting a, a kid, a good night's sleep and getting them a mattress from one of the great mattress companies that we've partnered with over there. So, um, yeah, busy times, man, busy times. Awesome. Well, we're going to go over there and we'll make a hundred dollar donation, um, on your behalf. Um, and I just want to, once again, thank you for coming on. Uh, for those that want to follow me on Twitter at Brian Levinson, uh, Instagram intentional underscore performers. And then we've got our website, intentionalperformers.com. And Sean, I, I, I think I had said this to you over email, but when we did our first radio interview, I was nervous as all hell. I can remember pacing and just my, my anxiety was through the roof, even though I was in school to learn how to deal with anxiety. And uh, (laughs) after the show, um, we chatted and I'll never forget. I'm in my apartment in San Francisco and I remember talking to you and you didn't have to do this, but you, you gave me some tips. And to this day, I remember one of those tips and it was, when the other person is speaking, you don't need to say, "Uh uh-huh. You don't need to say, yeah, you don't need to laugh. Try to be quiet because the listener is taking in the, the audio. And it's amazing. I, at that time, I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. That's helpful for radio. But I never even thought about a podcast back then. It never even entered my mind. And literally, as we do this interview today, you are still in the back of my mind saying, smile, nod, just keep silent. So, um, and that's a tip that I since have given to other people that have podcasts uh, because I think people like us that have no formal background in audio or radio or TV or broadcasting, we just never knew that or learned that. So hopefully that's a tip that people are listening to today that they can take with them for any interview that they do, either on TV or radio or podcasts, or maybe future guests of the podcast will take that into account. And I still laugh and I still sometimes interrupt, uh, but I try to be strategic with how I'm doing that. So I want to thank you for that advice. Uh, I want to thank you. Hey, man, for, Brian, yeah. I'm, here I go interrupting you. I want to thank you for bringing up the fact that you remembered it, man. That's I'm honored. You know what I'm saying? Like that. I think that's that's one of the coolest things I've ever heard. Yeah. That, I, you know, like because a lot of times advice, you know, like you give advice to people and you hope that they listen to, you know, like, you you know, you um, and I'm not saying I didn't think you were going to listen to it. You know what I mean? Like, but like when someone repeats back to you eight years later, like something that you told them, that's like you don't you don't get to circle back with a lot of people for that. That's really cool, man. I appreciate that. Yeah. And it's the truth. And I, I literally remember you taking the time to call me after we did it because it was the yeah. first radio interview I ever did. And now I do stuff. Uh, you know, I, I do radio spots, TV spots for my job. And 
uh, just to have that knowledge makes me better at my craft. So um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that. And thanks for your time. This has been a lot of fun and uh, I look forward to more conversations. And if I ever get down to Houston, I'll certainly hit you up and we'll go grab a beer or coffee or lunch or whatever it is that you want to do. And uh, thanks for coming on the show and, and uh, appreciate you. Brian, all the best, man. This was great. And yes, if you get down to Houston, my treat, buddy, we'll do it. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. I'm a big, like, get all of the get all of the tactical stuff out of the way as quick as possible. So it gives me more time to think kind of spatially and strategically about the show. You know, I'm big into eating. When I have a plate of food in front of me, I'm going to eat the green beans guy and get that out of the way because I like the steak and the potatoes best, and that's the part I want to enjoy. I always want to be saving the part that I like the most and that I feel is more productive for the, you know, for the, the longer arc of the morning, so to speak.